what they had to do is we have to chase things at higher deal values because their win rates are pretty good. So you start looking at what the leverage is, how do we go after higher deal values? Well, the interesting thing they found was those deals always existed, but they were so busy doing that transactional stuff yeah. that they were missing those big deals. So within 18 months, the average deal size went from $10,000 to $300,000. And within three years, the average deal size was a million and a half dollars. And last year, the average deal size was $10 million. We got the managers to really understand what drives the numbers, where are the levers here, and how do we start tweaking them? Hi, friends. Welcome to the Win Rate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Dave Brock. And Dave's one of my guests on this, the debut episode of the Win Rate Podcast. So, welcome, everyone. Many of you may have heard one of the 1,200 more episodes from my first podcast, Sales Enablement Podcast with Andy Paul. Well, times have changed for sellers and buyers in the eight years since I started that show. The needs of sellers have changed, and what buyers are looking for in sellers has also changed. So I decided that it was time to change up my podcast. So the old podcast is history, and here we are trying something new to help you increase your sales effectiveness, improve the buyer experience, and increase your win rates. My guests today for this roundtable discussion are Dave Brock. Dave is the founder and CEO of Partners in Excellence, a leading sales consulting firm that helps its clients outperform and outsell their competitors. Also joining me today to talk about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience, and win rates is Brandon Fluharty. Brandon is a hugely successful enterprise sales professional, and now he's the founder of Be Focused, Live Great, where he mentors top performing sales professionals to achieve their career and earnings potential. So you're ready? Let's jump into the discussion. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to this brand new podcast. And before we get started with our guests on this very first episode, I want to lay out for you sort of the premise of the show. And I wrote my most recent book, Sell Without Selling Out, in large measure because conversations I was having with hundreds of sales leaders and sales managers and individual contributors and other people involved in sales, and also looking at data from sales industry analysts and research firms that made the case that really over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, we've actually gotten worse at this whole business of selling, not better. You know, despite all the advantages we have of tool, great tools and technology, that we're becoming less proficient in what we do in front of buyers and are helping our buyers make their decisions. And there's no place that the drop in sales effectiveness showed more than in the continuing fall of win rates in B2B selling. The authors of an excellent book titled Strikingly Different Selling commissioned a third-party research firm to go out and talk with thousands of B2B sales organizations across the globe in multiple market segments, not just in tech. And what they discovered is the average win rate on deals over $100,000. So yeah, on deals of pretty modest size, average win rate in B2B sales is 17%. In other words, sellers on average were winning less than one out of every five opportunities they worked on their most qualified opportunities. And what's perhaps most shocking about that, at least to me, is, and see my guests think about this, is, is that seemingly sales managers and sales leaders and sellers are oblivious to their win rates and the story that the win rate tells about how they sell. So this podcast, this new podcast, is we're going to focus on sales effectiveness. We're going to focus on win rates. We're going to talk about the story and the meaning 
of your win rates and the factors that influence your win ratings, your win rates, excuse me, and the fact that nearly every aspect of your selling does indeed influence your win rate. We're going to talk the factors that influence buyers and decisions they make and obviously the influence that has on your win rates. And as always, with all my podcasts over the years, you can expect practical takeaways that you can use to help improve your selling and your win rates. Because here's the thing, as a seller, there's lots of things we can't control. We can't control the product, we can't control the features, can't control the pricing, but we can control how we sell. And in today's modern markets where buyers are sort of inundated by a surplus of choice, in many markets, the vendors all appear to be alike to the buyers. The products all roughly do the same thing. The products are all priced roughly the same. So in the absence of true differentiation, most important differentiation in the mind of the buyer becomes the experience they have with the seller. And so the key to improving your win rates is improve how you sell, improve the experience that you provide the buyer as they're going through the buying process. So every week I'll be here with a range of guests with various backgrounds and expertise to help you do just that, to help you improve your win rates. So today, two very special guests to help me kick off this brand new podcast. First up, we've got Brandon Fluharty. Brandon's an extremely accomplished salesperson. Many of you follow him on LinkedIn. He's now an entrepreneur helping other sellers try to achieve and what he achieved, the great success he achieved in his career. So Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. And with Brandon, joining today is Dave Brock, friend of mine. I think we've, I don't know, we've known each other, it seems like, for a while, Dave. Dave has a long background in sales and sales leadership, and for a number of years has run the firm he founded, a really highly respected sales consulting firm, works with sales teams around the world on issues of sales effectiveness. So Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. All right. So brief introductions. Brandon, expand on that brief introduction. Yeah. Yeah, no, excited to be here, Andy, and with you here, Dave. So I started my first sales role, happened into it, like many in sales, happened into sales. I started as an account manager in 2006 in New York City after a failed attempt of becoming a professional soccer player in Europe. And Soccer, football, football is life. Yes. You'll never walk alone. I know we're both Liverpool supporters. Liverpool fans, yes. Yeah. And then I made a life decision to leave New York City, and we landed in a small town in Florida, Sarasota, and I had to climb my way up selling $45 print ads to small local bars and restaurants, to eventually getting into mid-market sales, to eventually getting into enterprise sales, to eventually thriving with a mid-cap public conversational AI company where I sold into strategic accounts had my most prolific period during that four-year period, uh, able to be a perennial seven-figure seller and a seven-figure earner. And last year in 2022, decided to turn that income into independence and start my own one-person business, which, yeah, as you mentioned, helping other sellers to turn their intentions into impact, into income, and eventually independence. And I take all credit for your success. Yes, yes. And <laughs> our coaching in 2018, 2019 was instrumental in laying some of the foundations. On your, I think it was your first million dollar year, wasn't it? That was. Yeah. So, and who was your coach? Just to say that again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hope you got a healthy commission from that. Yeah, I should have gotten paid not on yeah. an early basis, but on yeah. a percentage. But that's right. I'm just happy for that his success. So, uh, Dave, tell us a little bit about you. 
I'm Dave Brock, author of the Sales Manager Survival Guide and upcoming Sales Executive Survival Guide. I run a boutique consulting company called Partners in Excellence, about 15 of us scattered around the world, primarily working with very large corporations. And all my, I got into sales in a very obscure way. I was studying for my PhD in theoretical physics and planning on being a researcher and professor. And one weekend, I was up skiing at Heavenly Valley, met this inventor. And so we'd ski down together and then ride the chair and talk about his invention together. And a couple of weeks later, he calls me up and he says, Dave, how'd you like to be our senior vice president of product development and engineering? And here I was, 21 years old, and said, holy shit, this is cool stuff. And it was a typical Silicon Valley story. We had a hot product and we failed miserably. And and I discovered, you know, there's a lot to bring, uh, building a startup company, a lot more than just a hot product. And so I went, got my MBA, ended up going to the dark side of the world. I sold mainframe computers for IBM in New York City, and then went up the food chain in IBM, went and ran, co-founded a software company in kind of the engineering design space. And they grew that fairly quickly went and ran as CRO or CEO of some turnaround tech companies, went back and founded a small AI company in the very early days of AI and ended up selling it to the original company I had co-founded. And now I try and stay ahead of all the trouble I cause. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you do that very well. So, well, thank you both for joining me. I mean, this is, I know for you guys too, this is a this whole idea of effectiveness in sales, about win rates in particular, we've all talked about it individually. We'll talk about it here together. Is To me, it's the single most important metric for an individual contributor is the win rate. And I think even necessarily for a team as well. But yeah. I mean, it is the clearest indication of the value your buyer has found in the experience of working with you. And yeah, their vote. And really, what, how good a job you did of selling. I'm just interested in your take on it. Dave, why don't you talk about that for a second? Well, I, you know, I think the win rate is kind of a starting point for really performance leverage. I think one of the most important things we have to start talking about at win rates is what is it? How do you measure it? Because mm -hmm. almost everybody I talk to has a different way of measuring it, whether it's, you know, from just raw leads to what orders are produced, which is probably the worst way to, to yeah. measure a win rate. Or, you know, more typically what I look at is, you know, rock solid qualified opportunities where people have made a commitment to do something. And what percentage of those do we win? And then why? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, you look at the start of a period, month or whatever, and yeah, if you're working on, yeah, if you have 10 opportunities you're working on and 10 close, what percentage of those did you win? That's your win rate. Pretty, keep it real simple. I mean, I know there's, as you said, there's some debate about that. But Brandon, what do you think about that? Yeah, I fully agree. I think there needs to be clarity on defining what a true win rate is because everybody seems to have their own definition on it. And when I, again, look at the portion when I was selling into Fortune 500 companies in a strategic account role, I was obsessed about really two two things. Win rates, I, I kept you know, data for myself outside of Salesforce that I would constantly look at and check in with myself on a constant basis at minimum monthly. Win rate was a part of that. And my average bookings, I was, you know, focused on net new logo acquisition. Mm -hmm. 
So I was focused on what's my average bookings? How do I improve that? Those were then the two levers that I could manage my process, my business against. And the way I defined win rate was if there was a mutual agreement from both sides of the table to pursue something Mm -hmm. and we committed our time, energy, and intention towards that. And I got to a stage where it was me deciding, yes, this is worth engaging with. And the client side, the prospect said, yes, this is worth engaging, where we could actually put something in front of them to decide on and make a decision on. That's what I looked at. A lead, because an SDR set up an appointment and convinced them to take a half hour meeting, that is not an opportunity. That's not necessarily a qualified opportunity. Right. Yeah. My definition is very similar to yours, Brandon, is, yeah, you're talking to somebody that's made the commitment to invest the time and I, I call it time, attention, resources yeah. to, to make a decision. And yeah, if you get to another period and you put in the disposition of the deal in Salesforce and it's, you know, you win or you lose, right? And that percentage that you win. And what's, so you said you tracked it. So what was your win rate? So I ended my career at 78% win rate. Okay. Make me feel bad. Well, mine, mine was, so I mean, I sold during my career as a, yeah, seller before I started my own company, selling things from six figures to nine figure type deals. But I was at 63%. That was mine. And I tracked it through a big chunk of my career because for me, that was everything. I mean, I I didn't know that there was what else made more sense. Dave, how about you? Any, did you track it or? Well, I mean, in my company right now, win rate is one of four critical metrics that we track. You know, in our company, we have Of the 15 people, we have 13 that are basically sellers and deliverers, and we range 82 to 89%. Right. (laughs) What's shocking to me, and over the last couple quarters, back in the fall of 2022, my company, we started this uh, cohort-based coaching program called Selling School, which is really to teach people how to use the precepts from my book, Sell Without Selling Out, to increase their win rates. And when we get together for the first meeting, we ask people, these are all AEs, many of them with 10 to 15 years experience. We ask, what's your win rate? And fewer than 10% can answer the question. The same thing with managers, though. I deal with Although, yeah, level executives. Right. When, you know, some of the first questions I ask them is, you know, what's your overall win rate? What's your average deal size? What's your average sales cycle look like? And most of them are absolutely clueless about what those metrics are. Now, a message from Alego. If you want to save money on your sales tech stack, but don't want to sacrifice productivity, then you need Alego. Alego's modern revenue enablement platform provides everything you need for effective onboarding, coaching, product launches, sales content management, and conversational intelligence. You'll be able to consolidate up to seven different tools and save on software spend while improving adoption. There may not be a more efficient way to do more with less. Alego's platform is unmatched in driving alignment across sales, marketing, and enablement teams, and will increase your ability to leverage peer-to-peer knowledge sharing, quickly source content and messaging insights from the field, and increase learning engagement and retention. So don't let too much tech hinder your team's performance. Demo Alego's revenue enablement platform today at alego.com forward slash demo. That's alego.com forward slash demo. 
Yeah. Well, this is so curious. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that it, this is not, you know, we've gotten so sidetracked by the activity metrics that we've yeah. lost sight of the fact that this is the thing that measures the job you're doing. It's not yeah. your quota. It's your win rate. Yeah. I mean, being a part of a high growth SaaS company, and I'm seeing this now with the individuals that I mentor and coach is that fear-based management has creeped in and it's, it's activity uh, metrics over impact. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think, especially in today's environment, there's a return to rigor by organizations that needs to be flipped on its head and impact needs to be measured at a higher degree of scrutiny. Right. And I, I think we've just for the past several years, call it maybe a decade, it, it you know, a lot of, at least in the SaaS worlds, in the technology world, the high growth, you know, unicorn types of company, the amount of growth that's occurred has been pretty staggering. And so there's been a complacency, you know, laziness, but also fear from the top. And it stems all the way at the board level of we have to just grow at all costs. And I think that has trained sellers from the bottom up that it's all about activity. It's all about number of email sent, number of calls to meetings ratio. How many proposals have you sent out? And we've been sort of programmed to be very robotic versus bringing a very human, you know, experience into a human driven business that, that we're in. And, you know, for me personally, I, again, working with Fortune 500 level accounts being hyper strategic, I knew that I couldn't measure based off of impact, or excuse me, activity. It had to be based off of, of impact. You know, I needed to be super rigorous about even saying no more than yes. And in fact, that was sort of the key driver for me is making def- no, no, say no as my default versus I think what we typically see in sales is yes, give me more leads. Give me, let me say yes to every opportunity because I don't know what's going to come next. And I think that stems from the top and that mm-hmm. needs to be corrected at the top. Dave? Leveraging off what Brandon has said, there's just such an irrational focus on activity right now. And, you know, as I look at, you know, people measure number of dials you make, number of emails you make, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, any with the technologies we have today, any person that can't make 100 dials by the first coffee break in the morning, you know, isn't doing their job. How many conversations have they had is a different issue. And, you know, and today with ChatGPT, I read an article a couple of weeks ago on LinkedIn, 15 minutes, I can send out a thousand personalized emails, but what kind of responses am I getting? So I think we get distracted by, as Brandon says, the activities we do and not the outcomes or impact those activities have. I think at a senior management level, I see another kind of distraction is we meet our revenue goals. So for instance, I had, last year I had a project with a very large company, about a $6 billion company. They've been growing by about 20% a year and they've been beating their revenue goals every year. And they said, mm. Dave, we're really doing fantastic. We just want you to come in and look at us and say, you know, we have these ambitions for the next five years. How well positioned are we to do that? And I looked at it and their average win rate was 
And they had no idea because they were so distracted by we're hitting our revenue targets. And I went to them and I said, no problem. You're going to meet your five-year objectives. No problem at all. But I'm sure glad I'm not a shareholder because you're underperforming your potential. Right. right. And when I said, you know, your win rate's 17%, I used to fire people whose win rates were less than 30%. And I said, look, you're, you're happy with the revenue that you're achieving, but look at the revenue you could get if you simply doubled your win rate. And so at a senior executive level, there's this distraction. Are we hitting our revenue targets or are we performing to our potential? Well, I think it's also amplified by this idea that are we hitting our marketing targets, right? Yeah. yeah, if you increase win rates, my story when I was working in startups is my you know, unique skill was come in and take over a sales team and double and triple revenue without adding headcount. Yeah. Because we teach people how to sell what they have yeah. and to be effective yeah. at doing it. And in today's environment, just think of all the money you could save yeah. from marketing spend yeah. if people were able to sell with higher win rates because you would need less pipeline. There's right. this you know, pipeline infatuation among other infatuations that exist out there. And it's part of the, at least to me, and I'm not put be too crude the analogy, but you know, if you're operating in the sort of consistent basis as your company was that you talked your client, Dave, you talked about, they could be meeting their goals, but basically they've turned sales into playing the odds. Yeah. If we get enough, you know, a casino game, we sort of know what the, our odds are of winning. So if we just keep feeding the funnel with enough and we're right. just competent at selling, not really good at selling, just competent looking at our targets. You know, I kind of, you know, I kind of take it from a maybe different point of view too, is, you know, if you're getting 17% win rate and you look at having to do, you know, hundreds of calls, thousands of emails, that's just too much work for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'd that's- rather win, uh, you know, win two or three times this, the amount these guys are doing because the pipeline dynamics change profoundly. You know, yeah. if you just double your, if you double your win rate or if Absolutely. you double your win rate and double your average deal size and things like that. And people don't know how to take a look at those metrics and play the games to say, you know, frankly, a lazy sales guy is, you know, for me, we're at in the mid eighties for win rates. Our average deal sizes are a million and a half dollars. And we really reduced our sales cycle tremendously. And so I get a lot done with a very little bit of work. <laughs> and I don't want to work so hard to, you know, right. deal with thousands of emails and hundreds of phone calls. Yeah. And I think that's spot on that there's this obsession with busyness that spurs on this activity driven type of approach where, you know, I think the better principle is, and, and I'm stealing this from Greg McEwen, author of Essentialism, mm-hmm. less but better. And if you could design your sales team or frankly, your organization around that principle, then it becomes really about recruiting, you know, back to the analogy we like to use a lot, Andy, you know, athletics, you know, world-class sports teams know how to recruit well. And so if that, but that's got to be steeped in a design principle around less but better so that you can bring in true impact players and you don't need to manage around busyness. You don't need to manage around impact. 
In fact, what becomes a better metric to have discussions in in one-on-one meetings is, well, tell me about a story you uncovered with with a prospect or a customer this past week versus how many meetings did you set? What's the point of having four meetings that lead to no you know, future conversations or impact, but if you could have, you know, unearth a real customer story, that's a better conversation to have in a one-on-one meeting versus just looking at a set of activities. So, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say is, yeah, one of my favorite quotes recently I've been using is from Edward Deming, right? Or the great father of quality control. And I posted on this a week or so ago. He said, yeah, Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And, you know, we look what's happening, certainly in the SaaS world and companies accepting these low win rates. That's the way the system's designed. Yeah. And yeah, I always sort of amused is, you know, people tout, you know, these high price consulting firms they bring in to do their revenue architecture. And it's like, sure, but what's your win rates? Yeah. And you need to have a process, but the process is generating these subpar, subpar results that are leaving as I think Dave mentioned, is leaving money on the table. Yeah. And it's like, why are we celebrating that? <laughs> because yeah. this is the system. Yeah. So let me ask the question. As individual contributors and as organizations, what's a good win rate in your mind? You know, uh, I gravitate towards, you know, 70% or above, I think is sort of the bare minimum. You know, I don't know that you can put a specific number on and be interested in hearing Dave, who's seeing 80 plus percent, maybe the 70 percent is too low, (laughs) but that seems a lot more manageable. Then you can design quality systems around recruiting. Marketing has a very distinct function in supporting sales in knots of just bring in everything that can possibly come through the door that can be hyper-selective in, you know, here are specific accounts that we want to pursue because we have a distinct point of view on it. We have a distinct per- point of perspective on it because we know we can make the biggest impact at these organizations versus trying to rule the world, change the world, win everything because of this sort of ignorant, e- egotistical view that, you know, a startup needs to become a billion dollar unicorn, you know, versus a calm, sustainable company that does high quality work. And I think there's, you triggered a thought as too, is that to me, one of the real issues when you're again an organization that's operating in a low win rate environment is that this sort of feeds through back to marketing and creating this vicious cycle is that you're only winning 17%, as Dave talked about, of your qualified opportunities. Mm-hmm. How can you be an effective channel back to marketing and say, this is yeah. who we should be targeting in our marketing efforts? Right. Because you don't really know. Right. Yeah. Right. Until you get your win rate up. Yeah. And if you do then, yeah. as win rate goes up, then you can start creating a virtuous cycle where you say, hey, we really get this, right? Yeah. Because I would make the argument that at 17% win rates or 25% win rates, despite this being the buzzword that many marketers like to use, yeah. you don't have product market fit. Yeah. I mean, there's one of two things that happen at low win rates, either you one and or both. Either you don't have product market fit or you just suck at selling. Yeah. Probably some combination of the both. And I was in a conversation this morning with Brent Adamson, Matt Hines, and we kind of got into that and your costs of selling. You know, so if you're looking at it from an organization point of view and profitability, your costs of selling at those low win rates are just prohibitive. If I could, with the same headcount, 
winning 30%, 40%, think of what that dumps down to my bottom line and oh, yeah. profitability. Well, I mean, there was a guy that took issue with me online a couple weeks ago. So I made this comment. I said, you know, anything under 100K is pretty much transactional these days. Yeah. And he's like, how can you say that? He said, you know, could would you call this deal, you know, our average deal size 35K and, you know, we make eight calls and we do five demos and we talk to and I'm like, yeah, dude, if you're only winning 25% of your deals, that doesn't pay. You can't yeah. keep doing that. That's right. And that's the root of it. That is the root of the issues that I think false narrative and that false thinking is just throw a bunch of bodies at it, get the land. It can expand later. I bucked that trend. So in the four year period where, you know, I earned life changing income, I, I purposely went into 14 very strategic accounts that again, we had that mutual buy in from both mm-hmm. sides of the table. I lost four of those opportunities. Three of those were those companies saying, thanks, Brandon. We appreciated everything you put in front of us, but we're going in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those stung. One of those was our company choosing not to move forward, even though that particular company wanted to move forward. That stings too, but you know, as it, yeah, it's, yeah. Right, yeah it, nothing you can do about that. But the other 14 opportunities that I won... I was hired to be what you were describing, Andy, is just go sell a starter package. That's what we called it. And granted, it was a $250,000 program, but the idea was just go hustle, constant activity, get in front of these stakeholders. But I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. If I am going to spend six months, nine months, however long it's going to take to sell a 200, present a $250,000 problem that I'm solving for, it's going to take just as long, if it, if not longer, than if I were to elevate my stature within the organization to try to solve for a $25 million problem. Mm-hmm. And what I ended up doing was win rate is a parent metric, and then my average deal size and my average deal cycle were sort of the complementary metrics that supported win rate, my average booking was 1.92 million mm-hmm. when I was hired to sell an average of $250,000 deals. By elevating up within the organization, I go into the deep blue ocean and reduce the competition. I'm no longer in RFP territory. We're talking about transformations. And right. that's, again, a focus on quality. That's a focus on impact. That's a different selling style than, okay, let's hire some robots if we could and just sell these small you know, packages that get the new logo in the door and then we'll figure it out later. And where I'm coaching a lot of individuals now are individuals who have to fix those problems. Oh, we just got a horrible deal done that didn't strategically align with the initiatives, the growth initiatives of the organization just to get a deal done at the end of the quarter. And now- you know, an AE or an account manager has to come in and fix that. Now, there's opportunity in fixing those problems, but why is that a problem in the first place? Well, and you brought See? a really critical point too. I'm sorry, Davis, just real quickly is, yeah, the amount of time that you need to invest as a seller for a $250,000 deal yeah. could be very similar to a $25 million deal. I mean, I, this was something I discovered early in my career, which is why I gravitated up market. It was like, it's taken me just as long to sell to this yeah. midsize company as it is to this yeah. big company. Let me go sell to the big company. Yeah. Dave. 
Now, Brandon said something that, that I think is really important. As I kind of look at the performance lever mix, there are all sorts of performance levers, but the core ones are win rate, average deal size, and sales cycle. Mm-hmm. And what I find too many people doing is they almost accept those as laws of nature right. that I can't change. So I do the math to get my revenue. And, you know, if my win rate is 17%, then in my, you know, my revenue per deal is $1,000. And if I want to make a billion dollars, I got to do hell of a lot of prospecting. But, you know, they don't look at says, what causes each one of these and how do we tweak them? And things like, you know, and as I kind of look at it, you asked the question earlier is what's a good win rate? As a consultant, the only responsible answer I can get, say is it depends. But is that I work with a company, a very large European company. Each salesperson had an average of about a thousand accounts. Their average deal value was about $10,000. And, and their win rates were really pretty good in the mid 50s. And they came to me and said, Dave, to meet our growth objectives, we're going to have to hire 500 salespeople a quarter. That's, excuse me, 500 salespeople a month. That's kind of tough. Yeah. How do we do that? How do we afford it? Blah, blah, blah. So we went through and re-engineered the thing. And we all of a sudden said, you know, something's wrong. So what we did is we started getting in under these numbers that we've been talking about. And first we did is we created an inside sales organization. We took the average salespeople from average of 1,000 accounts each to 15 accounts each, and we kept their quotas the same. And most of them were mm-hmm. saying, oh, my God, what do I do? Yeah. And what they had to do is we have to chase things at higher deal values. Right. Because, you know, their win rates are pretty good. So you start looking at what the leverage is. How do we go after higher deal values? Well, the interesting thing they found was those deals always existed, but they were so busy doing that transactional stuff that they were missing those big deals. And all of a sudden, they started going in. So within 18 months, their average deal size went from $10,000 to, I believe, the first phase was $300,000. And within three years, their average deal size was a million and a half dollars. And last year, the average deal size was $10 million. But what happened is we got the managers to really understand what drives the numbers, where are the levers here, and how do we start tweaking them? What was interesting as we went through this is their win rates went up to in the mid-60s, low 70s. Mm -hmm. Average deal sizes were skyrocketing, so you can imagine the revenue impacts. And now a message from Closed. There's a cheat code to revenue growth. You hire Closed to simply ask your buyers what you could do better to win their business. If you talk to enough customers, you eliminate all the guesswork around what products to build, how to consistently outsell your top competitors, and even how to retain your most unhappy customers. The simple practice is like using a metal detector to find buried treasure in your business. For example, one Closed customer noticed a pattern and has closed one buyer interviews Customers kept saying, we totally would have paid more for this product. So this revenue leader took action. He increased prices by 30%. And you know what? They didn't even see a drop in their win rate. That's an immediate increase of 30% in your revenue. So improve your win rates, unearth win back opportunities, and discover other revenue hidden in your business with direct, candid feedback from your buyers. Here's how Close can help you get started. 
Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So visit winlosstoolkit.com today. This is, gets to one of my you know, bugaboos is, is, you know, organization think, oh, well, we got to start with small companies. Well, you know, we'll learn what we're doing, selling to small companies, and it'll go up market over time. Yeah. And my approach was always in, in growing companies was, if we want to sell to big companies, let's start selling by selling to big companies. That's how we learn what we need to do. This is how we get good at selling to big companies. And, and so that's one that I think companies really miss the mark on is if you want to sell to big companies, start by selling to big companies. The other thing too is, is yes, yeah, we've all have talked about sales cycles. You know that I, I don't think sales cycles are duration. I think they're quantity. <laughs> it's you know, the amount of time you put in because yeah. that's your ultimate limiting factor as an organization of how many deals you can do. But yeah, you know, companies are completely unmindful of that. I mean, see, that's you know, where you start going through and engineering what you do yeah. is in our own company years ago. I mean, we have very high win rates. We have reasonably high transaction values. And so we started saying, what could we do? We discovered we were doing an average of 22 meetings per, to close. And for us, most about 50% of the time, it meant jumping on an airplane taking the time to fly maybe internationally, pay for that and looking at all the time. And so you try and pack as much as you could into a trip, but it was still a huge time drain and a huge cost. And so we started looking at what do we do? And we took kind of a design thinking kind of approach. And we're now down to an average of nine meetings to close. So we've doubled our productivity. Right. We haven't reduced the customer decision cycle. We've reduced it by about 20%, but we've reduced the time it takes us to do a deal by over 50%. So now we can go and do, you know, grow our revenue. More deals. Do more deals. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And the funny thing about that is customers love it because we're accomplishing much more in every meeting. And we're yeah. them much more productive. And so right. we doubled our productivity. But see, what I don't see in this current culture of sellers and particularly sales managers is that let's get, let's not accept the numbers. Let's get underneath and see what yeah, causes exactly. the numbers and how we, where we can start tweaking to drive performance. And I think part of it is this growth, regardless of the cost, so we can always get VC funding, we can always get money. And so that causes us to be a little bit lazy and not look at how do we tweak the numbers. When I didn't, Brendan, you're a kid by by high standards, but you know, when you had these limited budgets and you said, how do you double your sales without any increase in headcount yeah. And the increase in budget, you s- sit down and scratch your head a few times. The theory of constraints is yeah. great for sellers, yeah. right? I mean, this That's is right. how you figure it out. Go ahead, Brandon. I, yeah, Dave, I love that you used the term design thinking because that's what the macroeconomic environment is forcing organizations to do. Again, we've sort of been in a decade of easy funding, you know, easy access to capital. That's all changed over the past 18, 24 months. 
And it's going to force us to go back to using design thinking, using human-centered principles to think about all the important constituents here. You've got the seller, right, who's on the verge of burnout, who's being told, you know, activity busy. You've got, you know, mid-level managers and you've got sales leadership who's taking the pressure from, you know, the VCs and the board hey, where's the revenue we've got, you know, to meet that 20% growth target quarter over quarter. But if we step back and think about the, you know, also the prospect and the clients as this human-centered approach, and then it becomes, as you said, Dave, an engineering exercise. And here's a story of just that, you know, in 2018, I was of the mindset as an individual contributor, I can win everything. Yes, and I was saying yes to everything. And Andy, the person who introduced you, mm-hmm. me to you, Sean Burke, my manager at the time, a great manager. We sat down at the end of 2018, which was a, it was a strong year for me. One Delta Airlines, a great deal with another large organization. I was MVP. So I thought I was hot stuff thinking, ah, I can win every account. Just give me everything. But he sat me down and he was very direct and said, Brandon, you're great in front of organizations where you obviously care about them. And I benefited from being in the B to, to B to C space. So it was very easy for me to be a customer of a lot of these large organizations that I was pursuing. And that became a bit of my ethos of, well, I want to be their customer before I ask them to be our customer. And the organizations where I couldn't be that, it showed. And he joined me in every one of the meetings along with a large account team. And he said, Brandon, when you obviously know something about the brand and it's very clear that you're passionate about being their customer, it shows. When you're not, (laughs) that shows as well. And there's a big difference. So I went through a design thinking exercise using the Japanese concept Ikigai, which is, you know, a Venn diagram of what are you good at? What does the world need? And so forth. And I did something similar. I had five criteria of things that were important to me. And I applied that as a filter against my strategic account list of 50 accounts. And I removed a lot of things. I then made no my default versus saying yes to every single account. And I went from a strong year, earning 200K that first year, to a million and a half that in 2019 by focusing on working very specific accounts, not the largest accounts. I removed you know, some very large organizations, Walmart, Apple, but I went further down the Fort- Fortune 500 list. Again, very large organizations, but I knew I could get high up in those organizations. I knew I could move faster. And that impacted my win rate. I went from 68% into the 70s. I increased my average bookings. I decreased my sales cycle and I eventually got into like six month sales cycles selling, you know, an average of, uh, you know, seven figure deals by going through that design thinking type of exercise where again, no was the default less, but was, was really sort of the design principle that went into that. So, so applying consulting ease or whatever it is to what Brandon's saying is what Brandon did is he really focused on what's my ICP. And he mm-hmm. just narrowed that target. And rather than going after the world, he said, here are the people I want to work with where I can have an impact, where I'm interested in, and they're going to be interested in me. 
And, you know, if, you know, the fastest way to improve performance, it's amazing how easy it is. Focus on your win rate. And what you do is you do vicious disqualification. Yep. You know, our pipelines are filled with wishful thinking and crap. You know, we can double win rates and double performance just by cleaning the crap out of our pipelines. Well, and this is the thing that drives me crazy. I was a big voice in the VC world that was talking last year about, you know, as you scale, your win rates are going to go down. I was like, yeah. And I was like, well, why? Well, because you have more conversations. I said, well, so? I said, you know, that doesn't mean you let them into your pipeline. It's like, you know, as a seller, you choose, as Brandon so wisely said, you choose who you want to sell to. And I, my first book, I use the analogy of, you know, you as a seller, you're the bouncer at the head of the velvet rope. Who are you going to let into your club? And you, that's the decision. That decision has a huge impact on your win rate and your ability to serve your buyers. One of the most underlooked things in really the value we can create with our customers in the performance we can drive both for them and for us is that ICP. And, you know, the narrower and more refined you have it, you know, you know, is all I want to do is I want to focus on the customers where I am the best in the world at solving a certain kind of problems and the customers that have those problems. I don't want to waste my time on anybody else as charming and interesting as they might be. (laughs) I'm wasting my time and their time. That's right. I call it the category of one seller. The seller, individual contributors need to be empowered to feel like they are a category of one. Only they in the world can solve the challenges of the person on the other side of the table, the prospect or the client. They feel that experience and sellers need to be enabled to make these decisions. Listen, you're hiring smart people for a reason. Now don't handicap them by putting on layers of micromanagement, they are business owners within the larger organization. And also just from a psychology standpoint, though, too, is if you're at a 25% win rate, just use that as an individual. And if practice makes perfect, what are you practicing doing day in and day out? You're practicing losing, right? I lose three quarters of what I do. I'm going to get pretty good at that. And so we have to put people in a position where they have confidence. If they want to be that, that, you know, market of one, as you talked about, that brand of one comes from having the confidence of winning. And people sort of, sometimes they hear me talk about winning. There's like, you know, isn't that little salesy or something? It's like, no, it's not salesy at all. It's like, yeah. why do we stay in sales? Right. Some people say I stay in sales because I'm motivated by the money or so on. But we know from research, the people yeah. are most successful in the long term are not motivated primarily by money, but it's by what they achieve, the fulfillment they find from working with their customers and so on. But you I can't, so, why well, I was just going to finish one sentence is you can't help your customers if you can't win their business. Yeah. I mean, that's it. You know, and part of it is we need to be very self and jealous about our time. Yes. yes. And I'm not going to work with anybody that's going to waste my time. I can't yeah. help them and they're not going to help me. There are very few people that have that psychology. Yeah. And as a consequence, they're wasting huge amounts of time. Well, and I think people fiddle with the wrong things, too. And we're sort of running out of time, but I just want to bring up one other point and get your take on it. Is I mean, Dave, you listened on the webinar I did this week with Brent Adamson and Aaron Evans and Howard Dover, and you were nicely commenting throughout it. But there was one comment that somebody made, because I, I brought up win rates, and this guy jumps into the comments and said, 
He says, you know, win rate data is garbage unless your processes are really nailed tight. And I was like, well, that's like saying, I want to lose weight. I know I need to go to the gym, but I'm not going to go to the gym until I lose weight. <laughs> right? That's I right. mean, that's like, no, it's, yeah, you, sometimes people critique win rate as being a lagging indicator. And it's like, no, yeah. it's, it's a leading indicator of future sales performance. That's right. It's an indicator that you have found the right type of customers that you can impact, that, that they value what you offer. So use it. Just like when I talk about seven-figure earnings and seven-figure W-2s, pe- people seem to get triggered by that. It's just, a, it's just an outcome of figuring out what worked and doubling down on the things that work. That's, again, how you get into that category of one territory is being ruthless about your time. And I would argue also the other finite resources that a lot of modern sellers struggle with and everybody in the performance economy is your energy and attention, right? Mm-hmm. No use having all the time on the, in the world if you're draining your energy because you're constantly hustling around the clock and getting four hours of sleep and wearing that as a badge of honor. You need to have the right energy as well. Same with your attention. You know, are you mindlessly scrolling social media or are you reactively opening your laptop at the start of the day and giving your time, energy, and attention away to others before you've defined this is the impact, this is the most important thing that I want to do, which by the way, leads to you as an individual contributor feeling more fulfilled. And exactly. to what what I love Dave talking about earlier is I was very similar. It was sort of a lazy seller. I want to do as least amount of work as possible with the highest amount of return. We should all aspire to that as performance-based knowledge workers. Our skills and our knowledge is up here. We don't have to be like a factory worker and trying to work like a labor worker. You use your skills and your knowledge to find where you can find the biggest impact. And that takes a, mat- a level of discipline to say, no, I'm not going to give my time or energy or attention away until I you know, can focus on the most important tasks, which are high leverage, high value activities. Right. It's interesting when I work with clients, a lot of times I go in and I'll first, you know, we're kind of trying to do analysis and understand what the problems are and so on and so forth. And oftentimes I ask them, I say, tell me who your laziest sellers are who consistently make their numbers. <laughs> and they say, well, why do you want to do that? Because I said they've broken the code. Yes. You know, the Love people that. that can make their numbers without breaking a sweat have broken the code. They have the secret. And then you have all these other people that are working 70, 80 hour weeks, you know, doing thousands of emails, hundreds of calls, not making their numbers. And, you know, I feel bad for them. They're working really hard. You know, they're trying really hard, but, you know, nobody's helping them break the code to say, what is it that I do? And it's those lazy sellers that consistently make their numbers. Well, that's because, you know, the ethos is that somehow more is always better. I remember talking to a client that was a few years ago. They were celebrating the fact they'd won the biggest deal to date in the company. And they did a pretty good job of documenting everything that went into it. And and I looked at, at the detail of their win law, their internal win loss analysis and went to the CEO and said, yeah, you can do one more of those deals this year. He said, what are you talking about? I said, look at all the time it took, right? 
and you're just mindlessly having meetings. Sort of like the example I gave before, the 35K deal they are doing, you know, five demos on. It's like you spent all this time on this deal and it's not replicable. You can't do this again. Yeah. And it's just like hadn't even occurred because they were celebrating the fact, yeah, we got it. It's like, but you can't do another one. But that's again about being stingy and selfish about your time. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, if you have a 35K deal, you have to relook at your process. So that's your average contract value across your sales. You can't afford to spend this amount of time on it. You have to figure a way. And it's, the answer isn't necessarily product-led growth. I mean, it, it could be yeah. a product that demands a seller to be involved, but you need to figure it out. Yeah. All right, guys, thank you so much. You guys are come back as often as possible because this has been a great conversation. And we didn't touch many of the things I wanted to talk about, but we've got time. This is just the start of this journey. So I really appreciate it. Brandon, tell people how they can contact you and learn about what you do. Yeah, very active on LinkedIn. Great place to follow and connect with me there as well as some of the resources on brandonfluority.com. Brandonfluority.com, yes. Do follow Brandon on LinkedIn. Dave? LinkedIn as well. And partnersnextonsblog.com. Excellent. All right. Gentlemen, thank you. And look forward to again soon. Thanks, Andy. Take care. Okay, friends, that's it for this very first episode of the WinRate Podcast. So first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guests, Dave Brock and Brandon Fluharty, for sharing their insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, The Win Rate Podcast with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating and a review, let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. Also, please subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's called Wednesday Win Rate. Each week, you receive an actionable tip that you can put to use in your selling to become a more effective seller and accelerate your win rates. You can subscribe at my website, annypaul.com. Again, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>